0: Second Corinthians the triumph of God's grace over and through human frailty there is I think that kind of carries the, the freight for the book as a whole and what the apostle does it's if we could just hover for a moment we're going to, we're going to read the first six verses of chapter four but just a couple of other things that uh, what he is doing in these opening seven chapters is giving the comfort of God and this letter is the most personal letter that Paul wrote. And it's emotional. It's the most emotional of the, all his epistles. He reveals his heart. I took the title for this series, A Heart Opened Wide. Now, I have to confess that uh, my, uh, one of my professors in seminary, Homer Kent, uh, Jr., wrote a commentary on 2 Corinthians, and that was the title he gave, it, uh, gave to it. I looked at it, well... I think that works. So that's why I have chose to use it. And so Paul deeply loved the Corinthians. And as Frank uh, remarked, that it was a complicated relationship because there was, some, there was so much mischief going on in this church. And these were his spiritual children. We won't take the time to read through Acts 18. It's the founding of the church. And it's a joyous, joyous note um, and where there's the Spirit of God was evidently, obviously working, preparing hearts, and this church became a significant church. And, and by the way, uh, the city of Corinth, um, for what it's worth, it's uh, you would like to live there. You would have uh, today. It's not, not quite as dazzling as it once was. Uh, a lot of rocks and stones and what used to be, and but it sits there on that isthmus. Uh, and there's Greece and then the Peloponnesus, and, and you have that, just that little leg between the two. And it sits there, just, uh, just a sun-splashed city there on the Mediterranean. A lot of commerce, and you get the nice breezes off the water, and the water is so blue, and it's, it's a nice nice spot, nice spot. But uh, the city of Corinth did present some special challenges to the apostle. And you know Paul suffered tremendously in his in his life, out of the ordinary. Actually, in a work that I did for my uh, I did at Western Seminary some years ago, as part of a bigger work, I did a smaller work on just the sufferings of the Apostle Paul. It's extraordinary, and the one thing that stands out is that the divine providence of God in uh shaping and designing the sufferings of the Apostle Paul to actually become the occasion for more effectiveness for him. He would not have been as effective without the sufferings that he endured. And so he suffered much and part of that suffering was brought on him by the Corinthians themselves. That's <laughs> ironic. It's the ones he loved them But they put back upon him a lot of anguish, a lot of pain. And what had happened is that some false teachers had worked their way into the congregation. Those kinds of people traveled throughout the the early church world and worked their way into communities and churches. And you you sense that when you read the epistles of the New Testament. There are those enemies of the gospel that Paul's having to combat they, they the Corinthians had been influenced by these false teachers because they put out a bad report about Paul they said some terrible things about him and you, you can, we're not going to have time to go through all of them but they, uh, they accused him as walking according to the flesh they said that he was a fraud we're going to see three charges crit, uh, criticisms in these six verses as a matter of fact and that they said he was deceitful that he intimidated the church with his letters. I mean, is he saying he's a bully? You know, he talks big on paper, but oh, when he gets there, he'll be a mouse. And he's and another one, as Chuck mentioned, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, they accused him of defrauding the people like he's got uh, sticky fingers when it comes to money. <laughs> so he was really getting hammered by those in the church of all the people to do it. You've ever been through a little season in your life where Christians render some really painful blows on on you? You know how that can, you know, when it comes from outside people who are skeptical and host, uh, hostile to the gospel. When it comes from fellow believers, uh, that is that is severely painful, and that's what Paul is dealing with here, and so. That's why he, he has to go in to defend himself. It has just gotten to the point where it says, okay. Uh, and he, he puts it out there, and, and he does so. All right, with that said, now I'm going to read verses 1 to 6. Now I'm going to make a few comments and along the way in reading. And that will help grease the wheels for them when we go through the handout, the outline. Now what you have is you have just a bare book. There are no blanks to fill in. Uh, All you need to do is you can use the blanks, and I've got just a little bit of supplementary material that will come up on the, the slides tonight, and you can put that in if you would like to, but you just have a bare bones outline. So with that said, I'm going to read and make a few comments on this section. All right, if you'll bear with me, just let me get a sort of, this is sort of like a running long jump. I got to get down at the other end so I can get my best jump off. So in order to get the best, I'm not going to try that here, but before I can do that, schoolboy days are over. And, but here's the way the book's unfolded. Paul immediately begins 1st, 2nd Corinthians, and he goes into this issue of comfort. Oh, how to give it to one another and receive it from the Lord. Then he, he goes very quickly into an extended section where he has to say something about this brother in Christ who had been disciplined. Now, the traditional view of it is, and i' I'm, I'm, this is where I am with it as well. You remember the episode in First Corinthians in five of First Corinthians where there was a man who was living in a an immoral relationship with his stepmother. It was pretty bad. The church was just looking the other way. But obviously they had found some kind of connection. And they were in the church, and the church was just, hey, no problem. We're big-hearted about these things. We're tolerant people here. And Paul said, this is just unacceptable. And he said, something's got to be done. So they did. And I think this is a fair assumption, but from what he says in 2 Corinthians 2, 2, they disciplined. They did take some action and reprimanded. And the, the sinning brother repented and was reconciled, but it did seem as if some were trying to get an extra pound of flesh and couldn't just drop it or couldn't, they wouldn't really forgive. So he has to admonish them. He reminds them, now be careful. Satan can use bitterness and anger and an unwillingness to forgive. He can get his foot in the door. All right. Then he goes a little further along, and then you will notice in chapter 2 in verse 14. And at that point in the letter, he begins actually what is a digression. Paul's famous for these kinds of things. Not that they are insignificant. It's just the way it's the way God works in inspiration of the Scriptures. He uses personality. He uses the the literary processes, thought processes that are common in a particular period of time, as in the first century, where Paul would break off and go all the way down to chapter seven, I think it's about verse five, where all that is really kind of a digression. And what he's doing in that section is to speak of the wonders, of the privilege of being able to declare the new covenant, the gospel. This is splendid, splendid, splendid. And if you're with me now in verse 1 of chapter 4, you see the word, therefore. This is looking back what has been said specifically from chapter 3, verse 6 to verse 18. Now, if you let your eyes run down that section... You can see what Paul does there. He describes the nature of the gospel, and he says, listen, there is something that you need to know about the nature of the new covenant in the gospel message. It's this. And he uses this in a contrast to the old covenant. And he goes back to Moses. You remember when Moses came down from the mountain after receiving the Ten Commandments, and his face just lit up like... uh, maybe 100,000 LED lights or something, And, and they had to put a veil over himself. It was just too much. And then he works it a little further and says, but you know, there was a veil over Israel's eyes that has come about in these days. And really, quite personal, this was Paul's problem. A veil over the eyes of the Jews. Do you know why people didn't respond to the message of the gospel wholesale? Everyone just go to a synagogue and everybody says, we're in, we're on, we believe. Do you know why? Because there's a veil. They can't see the glory that's in the gospel there. But what has to happen? That veil has to be pulled back and you see the glory, which is the glory of the gospel. And it is that wondrous message of the gospel, that new covenant, that is what I, Paul, was privileged to declare. And I am not about to throw in the towel and give up. Therefore, that's all, I'm just squeezing that word, therefore. There it is. Now, here we go. Having this ministry, the word ministry here, diakonia is referring to the ministry of the New Covenant. The New Covenant gospel message of Jesus Christ. By the mercy of God. Whoa, Paul had megadoses of mercy. (laughs) Think of it. He was a hitman for the Sanhedrin trying to take Christians out. (laughs) And now here's this converted hitman who, in the name of God, had been taking out Christians is now declaring the very message that was the lifeblood of the early church, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a turnaround. I'd say that's mercy. <laughs> and in having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Now, you want to underscore that because you look down in verse 16, and one I quoted just a little while ago, and you'll find it further on. In chapter 4 or in chapter 5, you'll find another statement where you'll see him coming back to that. So you ought to pick up on that. You know, that's just one of the little rules of hermeneutics. When you see a theme or statement that pops up uh, two, three, four, five times, you would think, when you, okay, this, there's something going on here. What is going on? Paul is saying he did not give in to evil. Too much is at stake we got the gospel we're responsible for. The message is too wonderful to call it quits. But we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. That is, we didn't come with secret immoralities. We were authentic. We, apostles, he, Paul, he didn't come as a hypocrite. He says, "We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper." Those are interesting words. That word "cunning" or translate—I think in the King James it may say—I'm uh, reading from the English Standard Version—may say "craftiness." It's a word which means uh, to perform tricks, one willing to pull any trick to get something. I'll tell you where it's used. It's used in in Luke in chapter 20 and verse 3. You remember when the Sanhedrin uh, sent some inquisitors to Jesus, and they wanted they to show him a coin, and they showed him here's this coin, and there's Caesar on the coin. And to whom do we pay taxes, or not? And you remember, and you know what it says in that? They came to trick him, trying to destroy his credibility, get him caught in something. Same word. But Paul says, I didn't come as a trickster. Ooh, I didn't or to tamper now that's a, that has a little special interest that that's used in chapter twelve verse sixteen the, It was used to describe what a vendor may do could do did do and saw it selling wine, and that he could water down the product and sell it for the better. Quality product, but it was watered down so you get more mileage out of it. You know how that can work. It's like the heavy thumb on the scales at a butcher shop, but nobody here remembers that. But where you do the kinds of things to dilute. So he's saying, I didn't, there was no deceitful handling of the Word of God. I didn't do anything underhanded. He was transparent. What you see is what you get. And I brought you this message with no ulterior motives. No hidden agenda. It was out there. He's just opening wide his heart, Eric. But by the open statement of the truth, ah, he was a truth man, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, aha, where's he get that word? Back over at the end of chapter uh, 3. It's veiled to those who are perishing. The problem is in the hearer, not in the message. Perishing, those headed for hell. In their case, the God of this world, actually it's the word "aunas." it's not the word cosmos here, it's this age. Who is the God of this age? Satan is given this temporary domain in which he works. This world, you know what this is. It's, that, it's a mindset. It's the way the world functions. It's its values, ideals, opinions, goals, hopes, views, all that. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. We're going to see he makes much of this. There is some really rich Christology in these six verses, especially now in verse 5 and 6. This perfect, visible representation of the invisible God, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, yeah, see, you've got to, There is a. You could make a case for saying you got to read between the lines. A lot of places, especially in Second Corinthians, he's answering his critics, and one of the criticisms was is that Paul was preaching for his own benefit. He was just trying to get a following, and there were a lot of charlatans who made their way around the Mediterranean world, and good talkers, and they knew how to. They knew how to sell themselves, and they could get money and sponge off people. No, no. The opposite was true. I came to you. I didn't come preaching myself, but Jesus Christ as Lord, kurios. We'll get back to that. That's really ground zero of the gospel. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. And what is he doing? Quoting Genesis 1, 3. He's using that moment at the beginning of earth time to do what? As God said, let there be light. And there was light. To compare that here has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So what God did in bringing light into the universe, he does in a miraculous way also to bring light into the dark and sinful human heart to create a supernatural light in the soul. you know what theologians call this? Regeneration. That's when the lights came on. <laughs> That's when the lights came on. Did you have a moment in your life like that? Did you? I hope you did. Now, I we could play with that one a little while. That is, when you came to know Christ and then a 180. I mean, you just had different outlook. Okay, we'll get back to that. But that's what he's talking about. All right, with that said, now let's walk through. There are three criticisms I see that Paul's answering here. And the first one is found in verses 1 and 2. You can see in the, 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 the uh, outline there that I say the gospel is truth. Why? Well, because here's what Paul's critics were saying. That Paul was not presenting the whole gospel. He was being deceitful. He was not really transparent. Now, we read this We think, what were they thinking? We know Paul, but do we? We only know him as we read about him in the epistles, in the book of Acts. But what we know is spirit-inspired. is spirit inspired. And we know this about Paul, that if there were ever a truth man, it was the apostle Paul. He was transparent in every apostle. He didn't deceive anybody. We had an interesting experience at a restaurant last week up in Nashville. We had some family business we had to take care of, and we went out to eat with Cliff and Martha, Beth's brother and sister-in-law, Went to a nice nice place, a little better than average, and uh, you could tell, you know, the the waiters, they were impeccably dressed, and they were just a little notch or two up. And we had this nice-looking young man came, and uh, I had ordered something, which I could tell, you know, it's just the way it is in America. They always give you, I get, sometimes takeouts, I can get three meals out of a takeout. So um, anyway, uh, I had some left, and I said, "Could I have a takeout on this?" And it, I enjoyed it; it was good. I was looking forward to the eating it a second or third time. And okay, so he's gone for a little while, and then he came back, and he had a bit of a smile on his face, and he said, uh, "Look," he said, "I, I have—I don't know if you use this word like a confession—that uh, actually what had happened is that what you had." left over, got thrown out. But what I did is that I went and got the exact, uh, the, sa- the same amount in a fresh uh, batch, whatever it was. And uh, I don't know what it was. But uh, he, he went and got it and replaced it. He just said, I just had to tell you, I couldn't, <laughs> I didn't want you to think that you were getting the same thing. It looked better, but it could have fooled me. Uh, and uh, I thought that was, uh, he, he just humorously of sorts, wanted to clear and say, he was not being deceitful. He told us what happened, and here it is. Point. And Paul is simply saying, I am not a deceitful man. And here's how he did it. If you track these verses that I read, you notice that he says in the first place that his motives were truth-driven. He had good motives. Money was not his master. He says this in chapter 2 and verse 17, that he was not out to get his hands in the pocketbook. And he was not driven to make money off what he did. You know, Paul said that there were times, he goes through this in 1 Corinthians in chapters 8 and 9 and 10, and he said one of the things that he relinquished as an apostle was there were times where he worked. He moonlighted. He didn't necessarily assume that wherever he went, those to whom he preached and nurtured and those who came to faith in Christ and so on, that he didn't presume that they had to reciprocate and and support him so that he worked as a saddle maker. He he worked hard. I mean, Paul was just, he was above board in finance, and you see that in chapters 8 and 9. It goes out of his way to say it. But also his methods were truth-driven. He was not a trickster. He did not tamper with the truth. He didn't do things like a bait and switch. You know, one of the ways in which Christianity has really gotten a black eye in these latter years, especially with the way uh, Christianity, sometimes Christianity doesn't come across looking too good on television. And it's not the TV's fault. It's those who use the means. But uh, how that there just seems to be um, these uh, tricksters who are trying to use their, their the camera, trying to use uh, sob stories, uh, trying to use... Um, if you give this, you'll get this. You know, they set up a quid pro quo thing. Like, you can, did you know that you can control God? Oh, I wouldn't say it that way. But if you will give this amount, this is an axiom according to these teachers, then you will get this. Now, you've got to direct the money to us. Okay, <laughs> small matter there. <laughs> Not so small. You need to send this to us. But if you do this, you're going to be blessed and just and this kind of thing has just hurt the reputation of the gospel. And, I, and when I hear that word televangelist, I just, ew, I don't take that as a compliment. And if it were ever used to me, I would be embarrassed because it has become to be, come to be an, an uh, epitaph for those who are slick hucksters. Paul said, I was not this way, not this way with you. I didn't tamper the truth. I didn't water it down. I didn't do things to, and you know, Paul, if I may just a little side note, it's related to it, but it's in another passage. Paul was actually charged with being an antinomian. You know what an antinomian is? Somebody who's against law? They said Paul was somebody who was preaching that license, doing whatever you want to do. Yeah, you can get saved and then live like the devil. He was accused of that. <laughs> first uh, Romans chapter 6 should we sin the grace may abound no 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 way that but he was accused of it because you know why because his critics were legalists. and they had a system where they had not really broken with the law system in the right way they wanted to make put down conditions upon Gentiles, if you're going to come to Christ, uh, oh, circumcision, uh, dietary laws, such things. And so Paul comes and just says, do you know how you come to Christ? Do you have to jump through any hoops? you have to do anything? No, it's free. Free. Receive it. And they said, ah, this is Paul, he's just giving you a license to live like you want to live. He was charged with being an antinomian. Not true. Not true. Not true. So Paul therefore was this received this accusation. I bring this first to I bring them to a conclusion and just say it this way: that a couple of things. We need to be we need to be aware and on our toes lest we be deceived, because Paul was not the deceiver. Those who were accusing him as such, they were the deceivers because they weren't being transparent. They had ulterior motives. They had a hidden agenda. And they were trying to shift that over on the Paul. I would just say this, young people, learn this. Ask God to, somebody told me this early in my Christian life and I started praying it often and have all these 50, 60 years, 60 years, of having known Christ, one of my prayers had been, Lord, I need wisdom. I need it. I don't have a good enough mind to keep myself protected from those who'd want to give me a false message, who'd want to fool me, trick me, lead me into some way of believing, thinking that's wrong. Give me a clear mind. Don't be deceived. I'm having uh, some interchange with my grandson, who is at university, and he's got a Bible teacher. I told him he was going to have problems, and sure enough, he is. He's not. The class is a problem. And he's being given some things in that class. Young people, you've got to get this. He's being given things in that class. Oh, there's just an anti-Christian in a Bible class. You know, the most dangerous place in a university is in the Bible department, in the religion department. That, that's, that's dangerous. It's the only place in the university system where they do this, get this that you wouldn't do this in math. Young people, math class, calculus, whatever, trick. um, Young people, everything that you were taught to this point about math is wrong. And I'm here to give you the real math, okay? So get that Sunday school math idea out. You've been taught one and one equals two and all this and power square and whatever. And you've been so... Do they do that in other... You've been to university. Do they do that? Do they undercut the very thing? you're? No, but there is one department in the school school they do that. Where's that? In the Bible department. They say everything you were taught, you were given. That Sunday school version, weren't you? You heard those nice little stories. But we're here to help you to see the way things really are. We're going to teach you. It happens. It happens. Justin and I were talking about this just recently, and that was they hammered him with that, where he went. So there, all right, OK, I've got to pull back off. I'm on the side road there, so let's get back on the main road. Look at verses three and four. What's the, criti- what's the criticism here? Could you guess? I, uh, well, you don't have to, there it is. Uh, uh, Paul's critics were saying that you know, your message is really obscure. And, hey, your message, it's rejected. Paul, hey, wake up. Get a life. Do you realize that you're going into all these places, synagogues and wherever, and your message is being rejected by most unconverted Jews? And really, most Gentiles, though a great number were coming to Christ. So... Uh, the idea is that if you really are, if you're really putting the message out there, you're going to have be more successful. And Paul, what he's doing here—it's a—it's a, it's a backstory to this whole con, this whole section. He's saying, "I'm going to show you what real success is, and you can't measure it the way some would like to measure it." So, what does he do in verses three and four? He says, "Do you know what the problem is? The problem is is not, as I said earlier, is not." In the message, the problem is in the hearer. Spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness. And this is why he then works through this. Jesus is the qualified to say because he's the unique person in the, the image of God. I'm not going to take the time to unfold that. But what he's saying is that the central focus of the gospel is Christ. But here's the issue. The gospel faces obstacles. What is the obstacle that he presents here? What do you see? What do you see? Shout out. What's he see here? What's he see? What's he saying? Where's the problem? It's in what? It's in... It's it's, a blindness. They they, they can't see. And who blinds them? The God of this world. Satan. So... um, I don't know where I got this, but I, I heard I came across this many years ago, pointing out the different kinds of spiritual blindness that can exist. Now, there is this fundamental spiritual blindness for every unbeliever that just don't see it, that don't get it, the way you and I were before we came to Christ. Granted, I, I, got, I, I remember I was old enough when I was converted at 14 to see the way in which my blindness was working. It stands in the way. And Satan blinds unbelievers. Now, what I heard, this is, I won't play with this long, but it's, I say play, I don't mean that in a shallow way, but think of it this way. There is spiritual nearsightedness. I have a special interest in these kinds of things, the eyes. myopia. That is, you can't, that's when you can't see objects clearly, far objects clearly. And Blinded by self-centeredness, that's a form of blindness. You're so wrapped up in oneself, narcissism, self-possessed possessed with oneself, and then there is spiritual far-sightedness, hyperopia. That's when you can't focus on near objects, bound up in the things of the world, can't see personal guilt. Just another another angle on this spiritual blindness. Then there's spiritual astigmatism. No perspective. Can't see things like you should see them. Blurry, out of sorts, confused. And then there is spiritual presbyopia. That's, that's the problem. That's old eyes. TMV, too many birthdays. Uh, that increase in age, the inability to focus due to age. Now, what has to happen? You know, there's a reason why in the Gospels, Jesus performed miracles of blindness, of healing blindness. And they're highlighted at critical points. We were looking at one in Mark just recently, just as he was getting ready to go into Jerusalem. Blind Bartimaeus. Do you know why those are there? Is it just to show us that Jesus was just so over the top compassionate toward people who were blind? Well, he was. But there is more there than that, in that it is a picture on the physical condition that illustrates the spiritual condition. He gives sight to the spiritually blind, that we can see things, and a whole new world opens up. This is a pitiful illustration that I'm about to use because I'm not, I've never been blind. Pray to God that I won't have to be. But I've been fighting a battle with my eyes for the last three years. I mean, I had 2015 vision when I was a young, young guy. And then this time of life, must be something about getting old, I guess, huh? that I had these issues. And one of the issues has been that things were really quite blurry. Um, I had to squint a lot. And it, it is, it, I got to thinking about how... This is why I will say this for the sake of you younger people. You'll listen to this. I'm um, going play the old man card here for a minute that uh, one reason older people sometimes can appear to be disconnected and by themselves and just quiet and not kind of entering in, because I'm, yes, sometimes because people neglect them, That's, that's true. But one reason is when you get older, things begin to happen to your senses. One is you don't remember names and so forth. So that can make you step back. Well, I don't embarrass myself because I've known that person 20 years and right at the moment I can't remember their name and then they'll think that I'm, I don't really care about them so I just won't say anything. Or, you can have hearing problems that you miss things, you miss a word, you miss an inflection, you don't get the ending, you know, that kind of stuff. So you don't hear well. So, okay, so you just, and the worse it gets, the more, so you kind of pull in. You just keep pulling in. And then if you don't see very well, and you're not sure if you're seeing, and I'm not sure who that is over there. So you know what the tendency to do is? The tendency to do is just, well, I've got about five minutes before the service starts. I'm just, I'm just well, this is much better. <laughs> I'm not embarrassing myself. And all right, just a little reminder. So I'm not asking for pity. I'm just saying, as you think about older people and why there is this difference sometimes, that can be it. That You did, you tend to disconnect with people when you get older. And so, um, be merciful. All right, uh, back to the point of blindness. Uh, enough of that. Enough of that. Let's go to the third and final movement here. Namely this. The gospel. The next criticism, verses 5 and 6. This next criticism... Is that, and this—you see it? I put the quote. Paul was self-seeking. What? <laughs> Who are you talking about? Self-seeking? Who are these rascals? No, this is—but what Paul says. This is why I have captioned this section here. These two verses: the gospel is Jesus Christ, the Lord. It was he. Paul was not self-seeking. His message was Christ. Why? He refers to himself as a servant. Oh, have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men and being made in the likeness of men he humbled himself becoming obedient unto death even death on the cross therefore God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus of those in heaven and on earth and on the earth will confess his name as Lord to the glory of God the Father that's really encapsulating what the apostle is saying here it's this that he was a servant because he's connected to Christ, the servant of servants. And if I'm Christ, I'm my MO is my care, the way I should come across. I'm your servant. I should think that way. Get up in the morning. I am God's servant. And the point of the that he makes here is that Paul's ministry, yes, it was that of a servant, but he was saying, this is where he says, the light The light came and penetrated the darkness. Look what God has done. There's no place for self-promotion. How could I be self-seeking? God's grace. (laughs) My life is written in that word. Grace, grace, grace. What do I have to uh, be boastful about and seek to get attention, it's all about Christ. It's all about Christ. Now let me say something about this one word. We're going to tie it up here and then we're going to talk about Uh, uh, Tuesday, the election, and we'll pray and move through. I want to say something about this use of the word Lord here to this, to show you the significance of it. When he says that Jesus Christ as Lord, I don't know that we really fully appreciate that in our, uh, at least average Christian. I don't think so. Because the word Lord is the word kurios. Kurios. And this word kurios, Lord, is used, I think, somewhere around, was it 250 times in in the epistles, Lord. And the reason for the use of this word Lord, and it became so important in the preaching of the church, was this. The Old Testament name for God, a personal name, not the only name, God had many names. But the name by which he was related to as the covenant God was Yahweh. comes out in English, Y-A-H-W-E-H. God. Now, yes, the word Lord is used in different, uh, It has sometimes it means sir, sometimes it means master. But that's not the driving point of the way in which it comes out in the New Testament with regard to, to the person of Christ. I'll give you a couple examples. One is, of course, what he says here, but the one, the passage that I just quoted to you from Philippians 2 and 4 through 11 confess that Jesus Christ is what? Is what? Lord. Do you know why that is so important? And, and here, add this on to it. Acts chapter 2. Acts 2 is important here. For when Peter preached his first sermon, you know what he did? I've got to read that one. Oh. oh, boy, this is great. I don't have to use a magnifying glass anymore. I got me some new glasses and I talk about an eye change. Thank God for that. I can see it for what it is. I'm going to, I'm going to take you to, um, uh, what was that? Oh, Acts. Okay. Acts chapter 2. Acts 2. Uh, come there with me. Just just a minute. Acts chapter 2. Peter, first inaugural sermon. Peter's preaching. He's got a mostly Jewish audience. And he's really ringing the changes on this. And here's where he's going. Here's this Jesus Christ whom you crucified, but God raised him up, the sovereign God of the universe in this person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, now look, At verse, let's go back up in verse 34, or come down to verse 34. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. That is a quote from Psalm 110 in verse 1. And if you were going to make the New Testament one long sermon and you wanted a text... I think you can make a good case for the fact that Psalm 110, verse 1 is the text. I know it's the text for the book of Hebrews, which is sermonic in nature, the book of Hebrews. And here it is. And that 25 to 30 times Psalm 101 or 110, verse 1 is used. Very important. All right, here, I'll cut to the chase. It's this. Here's what he says. You following me? Still with me? Look at verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both, what? Lord, kurios, and Christ, Messiah. This Jesus whom you crucified. Uh Uh-oh, you're in trouble. (laughs) You killed God. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? We're in trouble. We killed God. You understand? God incarnate in Jesus Christ. My point's this. The word Lord was ground zero in the gospel. The word Lord was used to represent the totality of the atoning work of Christ. Because in Christ's resurrection and exaltation, he was placed, therefore, as the Lord of the universe. Was he made God? No. He was appointed, declared. Read Romans chapter 1 and verse 4. He was declared to be God incarnate. He wasn't made God. And here's a quote I came across that I thought said it so well. <laughs> Interestingly, it comes from a very liberal book, it comes in the Interpreter's Dictionary of the Bible. But he said this, To an early Christian accustomed to reading the Old Testament, the word Lord, when used of Jesus, would suggest his identification with the God of the Old Testament. <laughs> well, how about that? And you know in Romans 10 and 9 where it says you confess Jesus and, and you believe in your heart and you confess him as Lord? You know what he's saying? Do you acknowledge him? In, he's God. He's God. We've got the Christians squabble over this, you know, this issue well, you say you asked Jesus to be your Savior, and then he can be your Lord later. Or did you make him Lord when you first, when you believed on Christ? That's, come on. That's not the issue. The issue is, when you trusted Christ, you know what you were doing? You were bowing your knee to God in Christ. You know, it never occurred to me that I had, therefore, to give, to give loyalty, based on the first commandment. Love the Lord your God, or the, the commandment that summarizes and Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's God. I'll tell you this one thing I heard on news just this past week. I heard it being discussed. I knew this to be true, but I heard it in a conversational radio. It just confirmed it. And it was this, that do you know why the Jews rejected Christ? When did they reject him? What well, was the one thing? It was just, it was the, it was, it was the deal breaker. See, it comes up in John. and. Uh, he said he was God well okay, they were all okay, let me go back I've got to finish this that here's what was this the conversational radio was this jew was a Jewish man and a very i mean he's a man as a Jew who is very gracious and kind to evangelicals, and someone called in and said they were a messianic Jew, and they wanted to talk about that well he knew the man probably was wanting to get to, that, and this Jewish, the radio guy, was saying that, uh, you know, what Christians really, and Jews for the most part, this is the way they think, non-safe Jews, that when you come and announce that you're a Messianic Jew, what you really need to be saying is that you're a Christian. Just say that, you're a Christian. Because to the Jew, there have been many different messiahs And that what they were looking for in the first century and what they're looking for now is not God to come back in Christ. They're looking for a political Messiah. That's what they want. And so to have declared that Jesus was God, that was it. That's ground zero of the gospel. Everything. So that's why Paul says that about Jesus Christ as Lord.